are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Last weekend, I traveled to Washington State University to attend the 2009 WSU Festival of Contemporary Art Music, or FOCAM. This festival has been in existence since 1989, but this was the first year it featured a national call for works. This was also the first year the festival was under the direction of Dr. Scott Blasco, who was recently tenured. Congrats, Scott. Uh, There were six concerts of contemporary music from the WSU faculty and students, the featured guest composer, who was uh, Jim Stevenson, the featured performer, oboist and WSU faculty, uh, Carrie McCarthy, and guest composers like the ones you are about to hear from. My piece on the festival was my oboe and fixed media piece, Struggling in Excess, uh, which was performed by the featured guest performer, uh, Carrie McCarthy, who absolutely rocked it. Uh, You can find a recording of this piece on my website, uh, robertwmcclure.com, under the Listen tab. Carrie also performed a work by Jay Batzner that we will hear later, but for now, let's start off with my interview with Charles Halka en route to the festival. Uh, Longtime listeners will remember Charlie from episode 13. Charlie and I were driving to Pullman, Washington, where WSU is, from Bellingham, Washington, where Charlie is the brand new professor of composition at Western Washington University. So uh, we're currently on the road. We're driving past a lot of uh, snow and in the distance there are mountains and we are on our way to Washington State University for the uh, festival of, what is it? The FOCAM. It's a festival of contemporary art music. FOCAM. And I'm here with Charles Halka. We're, we're driving together, and uh, we both have pieces on this festival, so I thought it'd be nice to revisit a former... Uh, podcast guests like way back in the beginning we're talking about like episode I don't know 13 or 14 or or something like that and uh, look at this look at this piece of his that um, it's a pretty old piece and it's for Melodica and Live Electronics and the title is Melodica NV the letters NV what what is what does that mean uh I believe it it was that um, there was a melodica. So I wrote this at at, uh, at Rem Labs at, at Rice University when we were there, and um, I think someone had a melodica in the studio, and I brought it. It was it was Kurt, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah, I think it was Kurt's melodica, and um, his melodica was quite small compared to mine. So I brought mine in, and and we joked that that Kurt had melodica envy, and. Um, <laughs> And it stuck, and I didn't want to. I guess I didn't want it in the title to be actual E N V Y N V. But then, of course, moved to Nevada, and everyone thought it stood for Melodica in Nevada. Um, so that's that's the story. The end. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> so, uh, wh- like, why did you have a melodica? You know, the, I I only I think I only kind of learned about that instrument from from it being in the studio with you and Kurt. Yeah, so it's so melodicas are really popular now for sure. I mean, um, uh, Jean Baptiste uh, on the on the late night. That's that Stephen Colbert's show. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's. I think that's done a lot to really popularize it. 
Uh, anyway, and when I was growing up, um, I guess in high school was when I got my first melodica. Actually, my, my best friend had a melodica in the family, and so I had known about it since elementary school. But I got my own. I, I, I borrowed his, you know, kind of indefinitely, and then I got my own, which was a better, better one. Um, you know, Mineski, Martin, and Wood uh, used him. I went, I went to see them live when I was in high school, and 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 they used it pretty frequently. Um, yeah, just kind of stuck. I've been, I've been noodling around on it ever since. And I mean, it, it seems like you know, you you were trained as pianist. So, uh, you you have a number of instruments in your collection that kind of are from that, you know, that world, that keyboard world. So you you know you play the melodica, you play the piano, you kind of you play the accordion, don't you? Uh, not well. I know I know how to operate the accordion. <laughs> <laughs> He's an accordion operator. <laughs> um, so uh, I mean. If, if you don't know how the melodica works, it has a piano piano keep a small piano keyboard, and I um, you can either play it uh, with a mouth you blow air into it to create a sound. It kind of it in a way it, it kind of sounds like the hybrid of an accordion and a harmonica. And yeah, well, it sounds like it sounds like an accordion if you use the accordion setting that only has the single reed active. The accordion sound we're used to has actually multiple reeds and it's actually usually two that are on the same pitch and then one that's at the octave maybe some maybe there's some accordions that have more it's beyond my expertise at this point <laughs> but yeah the, the melodic has a single reed for each pitch so it sounds more like a harmonica in that sense and you you know it, it is capable of i mean just like any other piano keyboard it's capable of harmonic possibilities and and since you're uh since you're using air, then you can kind of bring in some, some like kind of woodwind techniques, and, and you do some of that in this piece, right? Yeah, you know the you know the sforzando piano, um, uh, it's it's really responsive because the 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 reeds are right there, so close to you know where you're breathing you're you're breathing out or breathing into the instrument, I should say, uh, and so it's really responsive to really you know uh, um, you know sudden adjustments in dynamic. Uh, so in that sense, it's a really flexible woodwind instrument that you don't really need to have good woodwind, you know, embouchure technique yeah. uh, to uh, to be able to play well. Don't you also do some like kind of flutter tonguing type type of sound in this? Yeah, I can I can do the like the actual um, tongue roll, uh, flutter tongue, and also then the, the growl the sound as well, and that gives you different different types of uh, flutter tonguing effects for sure. You know, could be weird if the cop was looking at us. <laughs> we just passed a cop, uh, so kind of put the microphone down for a little bit. Just uh, think about flutter tonguing or something. What you said was so profound that I had to take a moment for it to really sink in. <laughs> so uh, this this was your first piece with using live electronics, right? Yeah, my first and and currently really only piece apart from the kind of exercises we did at, at Rice that uses live electronics. I've been yearning for the chance to, to do do another at some point. Uh, but yeah, this is the one I have right now. I've done some, some fixed media stuff for sure since then, but um, nothing nothing like this. So one of the one of the main um, effects like 
I think I remember talking about, or us talking about this in the class with, with Kurt uh, Stallman, who was teaching the class. Um, whatever instrument we were writing for, he was kind of encouraging us to find ways that the electronics could maybe augment the, the sonic possibilities of the instrument. And like if, if the instrument couldn't do this type of thing, how could the electronics like, you know, make it seem like it was doing that thing? So how did you kind of respond to that prompt in this piece? Yes, I didn't do much um, in the way of the sound of the melodica itself, manipulating um, its sound. But what I did um, uh, take from that prompt, the direction I went was how do I um, make this instrument of fixed pitch? You know, you have you just have the keys that you press down, and and those are the pitches you can get. Um, how do I make it more like uh, a string instrument? So in, the, in that in that case, I wanted to make it have the ability to um, play glissandos, glissandi, and so uh, the patch essentially reads uh, the volume I'm playing. I mean, at least when this effect is is turned on, it reads the volume I'm playing, and the louder I play, the more it shifts the pitch up. And I have it limited to very specific intervals by which it is shifted up, um, depending on where I am in the piece. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what I that's the the main um, uh, way that I extended the abilities of the instrument. The other the other stuff is just you know played back, you know pre-recorded sounds or you know stuff that I recorded into the buffer or played back um, at, at specific moments. But the the um, the alteration to the melodica itself. And the way it, the, 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 its abilities was to make it have glissandos. So, this piece is, uh, I mean, you, you've played this, you basically wrote it for yourself to be able to play um, a little bit out of necessity, um, you know, just, just so you, we, we, you could finish the piece and get it on the concert in time and everything. Right. Yeah, so it, was, it, was, um, it was done pretty quickly, and the, the, the patch. You know, the guts look like a big mess. Yes, they do. <laughs> uh, I'm sure a bunch of redundant things and, and things that are causing more trouble than they should or inefficient things that I've written into the patch. Uh, but yeah, I, I couldn't ask someone to learn the piece if I wanted to write for another instrument, for example, uh, in time for that concert. So it's, I'll just play it myself. It's actually been, you know, good. It was in the end, it was a good decision because I can play it whenever I want to. Uh, and this is one of those cases I can just submit the piece. Um, I am the performer, and it, it's also cool to have the composer on stage as the performer of the piece, kind of, you know, uh, uh, Liszt and Chopin style, right? Uh, we've got the composer th- being the performer of the piece. Well, that also kind of helps with, um, you know, so often at, at these types of things, you know, the composer will only get about, you know, actually like five seconds of face time to the audience so like no one no one actually knows who you are and uh with the composer also being the performer it's like oh you're the guy with the melodica that was a cool piece you know and it just allows you to kind of uh interact with the audience in a more uh more meaningful way or or more like uh you're you're more readily available to the audience yeah yeah i like that and i also because my background was was in piano performance I li- also like the opportunity to just be a performer again uh, in a less, less high pressure situation than, yeah. you know, than playing a, you know, some, some you know, ligety etude or something <laughs> um, uh, 
Uh, and another benefit of being the performer, or being the composer and performing it is that I'm free to make whatever changes I want <laughs> to the piece in real time. And I, ha and I have done that. For this, for this piece, there are several moments where there are, there's a long sustained tone or s two or three in succession. And if I feel like, um, for instance, the audience isn't feeling it, I can skip one of those long tones and just proceed to the next section uh, or just make them shorter and not long tones at all. Um, so it's, it's nice to have that freedom. Or if I want, there are, there are sections of improvisation uh, in the piece, and if I want, if I'm feeling it, for instance, I could keep going and make the piece, you know, a minute or two longer than it needs to be. Uh, and that's that's my prerogative. Yeah, since since you are the composer and performer, the the piece becomes much more malleable yeah. than it would in, in the hands of anyone else. Well, cool. We're gonna we're gonna listen to it now. And this will be the performance that you're going to give um, uh, at, at FOCAM. Uh, so here we go. This is Charles Halka and Melodica Envy.
Next, we join a conversation with Dr. Jay Batzner at lunch on the final day of the festival. Jay was featured on Lexical Tones in episode 57. All right, so I'm here at, a, what's this pizza place called? Porchlight. Porchlight Pizza. Pretty good, pretty good pizza, pretty good salads. But I'm here with Jay Batzner. And uh, last night, we uh, got to hear his piece for oboe and piano called Imaginary Stories. So what are the imaginary stories? <laughs> imaginary stories, uh, it was a term that uh, DC Universe used to describe basically what-if stories or out-of-continuity stories uh, in their comic book line. So the idea that there was that these were, it was basically their version of Marvel's What If comics, um, and in this in particular was inspired by a quote that Alan Moore used in uh, the Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, where in the prologue he describes how they were, that, that this was an imaginary story, and then at the end of the, of the little prologue text box he says, but then again, aren't they all? So I, I, I've always loved that line. And that and, th- and this is in the Superman universe? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, th- you know, this piece is for oboe and piano, but it didn't start out that way. No, it started out as oboe and percussion. Uh, two CMU alums uh, asked for a piece because they were both going off to grad school and uh, it was originally oboe and percussion. The first movement was a lot of drums that did not balance well against the oboe, and the second movement was vibraphone, and that was very pretty. Um, but I, I had the opportunity to kind of fix a couple of things about it that I wasn't wholly satisfied with and submit it here. So when you're, when you're taking something that was originally for a non-pitched uh, you know, non-pitched drums or relative pitched drums, and then transforming that into a a piano piece. Like, where did the where did the harmonic content come from? Yeah, it's because I also did the exact opposite. Because the the first movement was uh, originally just a like one page piano fragment that I had, so it was all harmonic. And then I stripped out the harmony and turned it into a drum texture. So it was more of drum gestures based on the harmony. And then the oboe was just essentially the soprano line from that that harmonic progression. Uh, so I, I basically got to kind of put the harmonic life back in that I had to strip out before. And I think that might have been one of the reasons that I was less satisfied with that first movement originally. Yeah, because I mean, <clears throat> for for instance, I I just completed a uh, a bra- I have a bra- low brass trio piece, and I the uh, the wind symphony director at Ohio University asked me to like take this piece and kind of orchestrate it out for band with the soloist still in it, and now I look back at that trio version, I'm like, oh man, you know, the, the, it's I still like it, but there is so much more life. Now that there, you know, there, there's so much more color and and the, it, it, it's there, there are impacts. It, it is more impactful as a as a band piece. So that that's interesting that you know you started out from harmony, went to non-pitch, and then went back to harmony. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it it, it is kind of fun fun to play with, and and sometimes 
I mean, I, I think I have a track record, like a lot of composers, where we have material that we like, but it takes a while to find it in the right piece. And so there's a, a legacy of motives and gestures and shapes that I've tried to cram into other pieces, and it hasn't worked until finally it works, and then I feel like I can put that down and walk away and like, okay, I don't have to use this material again or, or try to use it. It's here now, it lives here, it's done, I'm satisfied. So the second movement was is this just kind of very sparse, slow, beautiful, and when I heard it, I was like, oh, that's Jay. You know, so it was it was it it very it very much made sense with what I know of your other output, and you know it uh, it it had these it also you know it it has kind of a repetitive uh, nature to it, kind of a meditative uh, quality about it. But you also have these moments that I absolutely love, where you know all of a sudden there what we have come to know of the pitch language is then kind of thwarted by. A, a, you know, a non-chord tone or something. And that, I, I just found those moments to be really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I, I still, I mean, while I, I've never really been one to use a lot of functional diatonic harmony progressions, that's, that's never been part of my, my composition background, the idea of, of pitch, consonance, dissonance, resolution, instability, I mean, kind of the, the basic tenets of, of species counterpoint stuff has always been really important. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just basically a chord, um, and the whether the melodic notes fit within the chord or don't was, was it. That was kind of the only concern I had. Uh, and pacing the events out so that there was room for them to kind of breathe and expand and progress. Yeah, um, in your notes you said that you have some you have some theories about how comic books and music kind of kind of speak to each other. And in the notes you basically said like, uh, well, I, I'm I'm not gonna hit you with it right now. Let let's chat about it later. Well, I want to chat about it. So so what are some of those theories? Okay, um, yeah, in, I mean in the comic book community they can get some readers can get very uh, grouchy about continuity issues. Like, oh, Superman wouldn't do this because he did this over here. Or this character couldn't have been at this place at this time in order for that to happen because they were over here. Or, you know, uh, back in the 90s, it was sort of like, how could Spider-Man be in five different books? Which, where is he really? Or, or Wolverine or, or you know, those kinds of things. And the parallels I see with music is that the, the, with comic books, the creative team are sort of like the performers. And the, the comic book property that they're writing is the, it's like the sheet music. You know, there, there is no Mozart. It is the performer's interpretation of Mozart that we hear. And, I mean, I don't mean that there's no Mozart. Clearly there was, you know, man existed, blah, blah, blah. It's a big conspiracy. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. What I mean is what, what we hear is the interpretation of the music. And so I am, am perfectly happy to see different versions and interpretations of these characters. That when a creative team comes on a book, takes on a, a certain character or, or property, I don't care how it fits or works with others. The question is, do I like the interpretation or not? 
And you know, with somebody like Superman or Batman, you know, the, uh, with all of these characters, sometimes it's it's who is it that's writing and drawing, and how are they interpreting the the main aspects of the character? Which ones are they accentuating? Which ones are they are they suppressing? And in the uh, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow? I mean, it's it's one of the the kind of first big quintessential death of Superman stories, and it's really interesting to see that interpretation play out because again we got the same story not five six years later with doomsday showing up and that interpretation of the death of superman was totally different uh in i mean the the doomsday thing doomsday is just this unstoppable kind of incredible hulk like character who just physically overwhelms superman in whatever happened to the man of tomorrow uh, Superman ends up killing uh, uh, Mixus Pitlick and therefore <clears throat> exposes him. He, he says, well, I've crossed the line that I said I would never cross, walks into a chamber full of gold kryptonite, which takes away all of his powers, and then he wanders off into the Arctic as just a regular person. And you think, well, that's a totally different interpretation of, of that possible event. And it speaks to, you know, Alan Moore doing the uh, uh, Man of Tomorrow. And I forget all of the folks that were involved. Because there were a lot, of, a lot of creative teams involved in the death of Superman in the, in the 90s. And then, you know, you think of, well, Zack Snyder's treatment of, of Superman killing Zod at the end of Man of Steel. And it's a totally different interpretation of these kinds of events. And you just sort of see... Again, not that there's one definitive way that this character would behave, but it, it's the interpretation of it that I find interesting. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's listen to this piece now. It, uh, we're going to hear the recording that, uh, from the performance just last night, and uh, the performer is Carrie McCarthy on oboe, and who was the pianist? Karen Savage. So let's hear this piece by Jay Batzner.
And finally, we'll end with a conversation between myself and uh, Lexical Tones newbie, Dr. Ruby Fulton, who was graciously hosting Charlie and I at her house. Uh, This conversation took place following the final concert and final trip out to the bar in Pullman. And uh, Ruby is an assistant professor of theory and composition at the University of Idaho. And more info can be found out about her and her music at her website, rubyfulton.com Focam done in the books i'm sitting here uh with ruby fulton who has graciously been hosting charlie and i for the uh for the last couple days and we heard her piece today for alto 
Sax and uh, Fixed Media. It's called Wind Telephone. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, Casper. Stop. Hey, we're trying to do something serious here. That's what we're trying to do a podcast. The title Wind Telephone comes from the name of this actual telephone in Japan um, that was built in response to a tsunami that wiped out um, kind of a a large part of a village that was right on the water. And um, so many, many people were killed and or missing so one of the remaining people in the town um built this telephone kind of for himself he built it in a in his garden in his backyard built this telephone booth and it had um a phone that you could pick up i i imagine it uh like a pay phone you you could pick it up but it just didn't go anywhere it didn't have a cord on the other end of it uh so he built this thing for himself and then um other people friends of his and relatives found out about it and asked if they could also come and try it and um I don't know I heard this story about it on This American Life and it was just like one of those one once in a while I just you know get I don't know it made me cry and uh Maybe you want to learn more about it. And then I watched a documentary about it. Uh, it's just like such a strange and kind of beautiful thing. So the um, piece that I wrote is kind of loosely like inspired by that um, thing. So with with that telephone that he made, is that was the purpose of it to kind of, um, you know, uh, express grief? And I mean, it's it's going nowhere, but the, but that's not the point. The point is just that you you kind of need to express these feelings, and d- despite the fact that it, no one's hearing it, it's the what y- you're going through that process is the important part. Absolutely, and also kind of, I think for the for the person left, also still being able to communicate with the person that they they lost you know so they're in the documentary you see people even like whole families together they'll call um someone who's gone and and give them like updates on their life and and each person will come on and say oh yeah i got on you know via kid like i got on the um tennis team you know giving like these sort of kind of everyday updates even though there's no one there hearing it on the other end it's their chance to kind of I don't know. It's a bit of denial, I guess, um, but in a really kind of poignant point. I, it's like they know there's nobody there, right? So it's not exactly denial, but it's it's definitely sad. Mm-hmm. So this this piece is for saxophone and electronics. What's going like you? The electronics is um, it's the sound of a phone vibrating, right? They're like that sound, which I always thought was like kind of a cool sound, and um, I imagined it. I wish actually today that I would have had it the volume a little lower at the very beginning, because I kind of imagined it in in a concert that for a second you think it's like your phone going off, you know? Uh, Because I think that's a sound that we're pretty familiar with. 
Um, so yeah, so it's uh, a lot of the material from the electronics part is taken from. I just got a sample on like a one of the free sample databases. I can't even remember where exactly right now, but um, uh, it's just a single pitch. And then I I made the the uh, electronics in Ableton, and I I ended up um, transposing it and using it in a melodic way. Um, and then the the saxophone part. That I mean, you you kind of use the uh, vibe, the vibrating almost as a it's it's kind of like a two voice counterpoint in a way, and um, the melodic uh, the the saxophone melody at the very beginning and it kind of comes back throughout the piece that seemed really familiar to me. Can you is there a reason it seems familiar to me? Like or I. I um, it's, it's a short tune that I never finished. That's okay. just a kind of a simple, simple singer songwriter kind of voice and guitar thing. Um, and I wanted to do something with it. And then when I was working on this piece, it seemed like, well, on a personal note, the tune was about a sort of sad thing that I was do- going through myself, which was not about death. Um, but it was about like the missing someone, you know, so that turned into the not, it had words to it before. And then it turned into this, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, I think it's kind of like a chorus and I never figured out what the verse was. Mm -hmm. It was this little orphan, orphan bit of material. Um, but yeah, Jay, um, Bessner at the, at the show was like, what was that? That was really familiar after the show. And I was like, well, I, th- I mean, I think I just wrote it. Yeah. I hope I didn't steal it from somewhere. But, but it, I, 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 yeah, I don't think you did either. It just has that quality about it. It just, it seems for, it, it seems familiar, and that, I think that uh, actually helps get across your your, you know, the concept of the piece that uh, this. You, having that familiar feeling in a melody and then associating that with with grief or or loss or or something like that i thought it really worked cool thanks um the familiar melody i think to me is also like kind of represents the narrator or like the person who's sitting in the phone booth trying to reach it's kind of like the the me i guess in the Mm -hmm. in the piece um what were some of the other sounds? That, so we we hear the um, the the phone vibrating, and then we get into some other sounds in the fixed media a little bit later. Yeah, so there's um, some kind of windy sound, some kind of uh, uh, which I think, and I I wish that I remembered specifically, but I I think it's just like a random synth on Ableton Mm -hmm. um, that I thought sounded cool. That's kind of windy sounding. Um, But then there's also um, the phone sounds that get kind of get processed. Uh, I wish, I wish I had that file right now. I could say what I was just kind of playing with putting different effects on it. So uh, most of it is the, um, is that single uh, that gets uh, stacked up sometimes into chords, but then also um, processed. Yeah. I mean, I noticed as the piece went on, you know, when that, when the phone kind of counter melody would come back, um, it got kind of more and more distorted. Was that, uh, was that kind of part of the narrative that you were, 
that you were uh, putting putting out there? Yeah, and I, feel, I actually feel kind of conflicted about this now. I kind of wonder what if I would have just put in the program note uh, something like, you know, the wind telephone was this device that was built, and then like that's it, and let each person mm -hmm. take their own make their own story out of it. Yeah. I feel like that's a that's a weird thing trying to figure out. Like just because I had a story going to you know to make it, does that necessarily mean I should tell everybody uh, coming in to listen what the story was, or is that like too prescriptive or too trying to control the way they hear it? But but it does in in my mind it had definitely has a story, and as it's deteriorating de deteriorating, that's um, when you finally reached the person, but then. It, they still it doesn't last because they're not actually there so that's kind of like going from your fantasy back into like regular your regular you know sad state of affairs who'd you write this for originally yeah so i wrote it for andrew hutchins um and he's awesome he put together a group of of saxophone players and they all went in together on a consortium and then andrew has played it a couple of times, and tonight or this afternoon, it was my colleague at University of Idaho, Pat Jones, who was a part of the consortium. He played it. I love working with him because he always, he's just good. He makes everything sound good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, even if I'm nervous about if the piece is good or not, I know that Pat is gonna, gonna sell it. So he's a great, great uh, colleague to work with in that way. And that's the recording we're going to hear from this afternoon. So here is Wind Telephone by Ruby Fulton, played by Pat Jones. Thank you. 
Thank <laughs> you. 
Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.